Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. History fans, welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. And I'm Melissa. On today's episode, we are covering the SS Edmund Fitzgerald shipwreck. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to leave us a five-star rating or maybe even a review. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions? We much appreciate it. Yeah, just leave us any rating, obviously, whatever you feel we deserve. You can also contact us through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also go onto our Facebook and Instagram at historyexplainsall underscore podcast. And if you visit our Instagram page, you will see our Today in History segment which goes up whenever something cool happened in history on said day. And uh, we also put up polls on upcoming episode topics. One is currently up. We need to know your opinion by the end of Friday. Poll doesn't last, obviously, longer than something like 24, 48 hours. But I do also do a post of it, so you can find a post of the poll that we did, which is true, a true crime topics. You can put your vote in the post, too. So please go vote. We need you to break tie. Come on. We've got a tie going on right now, honestly. Please please go vote. We close the voting on Friday. And the topics for this poll happen to be? Uh, Leopold and Loeb. Do you want to hear about Leopold and Loeb? Or would you like to hear about dead bodies that were mistaken for Halloween decorations? (laughs) We, we hope you go and check it out. A little information up front. So we're changing our format just a little bit. We are no longer doing the weird history as part of the main episodes. We're actually going to go ahead and split that off into its own segment, which will air on Thursdays between our full episodes. So instead of taking up a few minutes of topic time just to try to keep everything between 45 to, to 60 minutes or so. We don't want to go over and make it too long for everybody. So we're going to do that separate. So we'll have the main topic episode one week. The following week will be about 10, maybe 15 minute uh, weird history. And then back and forth, full episode, short episode. Do it like that. Just give it at least something tie over between big episodes. 
But back to today's main topic. <laughs> and it's not the USS Edmund Fitzgerald, guys. That's for Navy ships. It's just the SS, which stands basically for steamship. So to kind of start off and give you an idea about about the, uh, what it would have been like possibly on the Fitzgerald at the time she was going through what was essentially a hurricane in the middle of winter on the Great Lakes. And we'll talk about that in another segment as well, but just a little atmosphere to give you an idea of what it may have been like on the icy waters at that time. So it's November, 1975. You're on board the Edmund Fitzgerald, steering her through the mighty Lake Superior. The weather forecast calls for strong winds and snow. Unfortunately, today, the weather would take a turn for the worst, growing from a turbulent snowstorm to a tempestuous hurricane in just hours. The sea begins to churn violently, the waves growing in size, the icy winds slicing through you, chilling you to the bone. As you're steering the ship, you change course, hoping to sail around the storm, but instead, you are now sailing closer to the oncoming hurricane. Soon, the winds are gusting at more than 60 miles an hour. The waves are roaring past you at over two stories high. The sea has become so destructive, it tosses the ship from side to side. Rogue waves crashing over it as you try to keep an even keel. Out of nowhere, the wave storms down on you and the ship takes a violent nosedive. Seconds later, a 30-foot wave smashes down the ship so fierce it begins to take on water and break in two. She's now taking on water at an alarming rate. You hear the captain sound the alarm and call for lifeboats to launch. Men go down to help deploy them, but unfortunately, it's too late. Another 30-foot rogue wave crashes down without warning. With no time to react, the force of the swells and the weight of the ship pull you down and fast. Into the frigid cold, the water envelops you. Your body goes into shock. And then, all becomes quiet and still. What a way to go. A very unfortunate way to go, but hopefully a quick way to go. That's true. I, I would rather it be quick than anything. I do not want to be suffering nope. up, up until my death. Just just kill me and get it over with, I did, please. So the Edmund Fitzgerald started off and being built in 1957, and she actually is named after the newly elected chairman of the board to the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Milwaukee, who, as the company, actually contracted an engineering firm in the area to actually build what would become the Edmund Fitzgerald, but specifically was built to be the largest ship on the Great Lakes at that time, and of the Fitz's 17 years shipping, she would hold that record for 13 of those years. She's often referred to as the Titanic of the Great Lakes because she was the largest ship, freighter ship, on at least on Lake Superior that we're aware of. She was built at 729 feet long, 75 feet high, or sorry, 75 feet wide and 39 feet high. Now, it doesn't sound like very high, but think of shipping freighters. You've got two ends on either side, which are, I think, usually referred to as the castles. I'm thinking more like a uh, Spanish galleon. 
So it's you've got the, the bow and the stern have compartments that are high on either side, and then typically it's a more shallow in the middle to hold cargo. So unlike a cruise ship like the Titanic, where she stacked several stories high because she needs to hold people, and so it's easier to have high than it is to have uh, length. The length of the Fitzgerald is actually the length of two football fields, just to give an idea. And when she's empty, she would weigh about 13,500 tons, which is a lot. And she typically would sail from Superior, Wisconsin, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan. The average uh, time to make that trip would be about five days. She even had a top speed of about 14 knots, which would be about 16.5 miles per hour or about 26.5 kilometers per hour. Pretty fast, particularly for that time, for a, a ship that weighed that much. And she cost $8.4 million to build. And 17 years later, by 1975, when she sunk, she was actually valued at $24 million. So she was very good at what she did. And we're probably going to mostly refer to the, the Fitzgerald as the Fitzgerald or maybe the Fitz. But... In that area, she's usually referred to as the Big Fitz or even the Mighty Fitz. And as I said, she referred to as the Titanic of the Great Lakes, partly because she was the largest shipping freighter at that time to have ever sailed at least Lake Superior, but also in a sense because of the way that she ended up breaking up. So the Fitzgerald, and we'll get to it, but... There are pictures where she literally snapped in half. So the, one of the prevailing theories is that when she took that nosedive and another wave crashed on her, she split in half. And you'll see what the, the, the front half of the ship is actually facing down. So when it landed on impact, it inverted. And then the other the back half of the, of the ship is not too far away, but it's facing upward. To give you a couple stats in comparison to the Titanic, the Titanic was 882 feet long, 92 feet wide. And at the time she was built, she was actually supposed to be one of the biggest cruise ships. But I don't I don't know. I, I to me she I like I think of it more like the Queen Mary and not the Queen Mary 2. I mean the original Queen Mary that was built in 1934 that's actually docked out here in California with which I got the privilege to work on, and she's absolutely gorgeous. But the Queen Mary was not only one of the largest cruise ships at the time, she was also the fastest cruise ship at that time and hold, held that record from 1936 when she was launched until about 1953. And she would go at about 32 knots, where... The Fitz would take the trip from Superior to Detroit in about five days. The Queen Mary, at full speed, could actually go from Southampton to New York City in just over a week. Where most cruise ships at that time were taking between three weeks, maybe even up to a month, depending on how fast they would go. But she's also much bigger than Titanic. The Titanic, as we said, was 882 feet. The Queen Mary is 1,020 feet long. And 118 feet wide. I mean, I, in certain sense, I get the Titanic, but from my personal reference, I say she's more like the Queen Mary. So, 
as Melissa was talking about, she made the travel across Lake Superior several times. However, Melissa didn't talk about what she was carrying, so that's my job. So the SS Edmund Fitzgerald actually would carry on its route back and forth between Silver Bay, Minnesota, to Detroit, Michigan, or the Toledo, Ohio area. She would carry taconite, which is an iron ore that has magnetite in it, and it's used for steel. So she would take the taconite from Minnesota where it was mined mainly in the Misabi Iron Range in Minnesota, or it was ironed at the Marquette Iron Range in Michigan. Not region, sorry. Marquette Iron Range in Michigan. And she would take it to either Detroit or Toledo, Ohio. Really. Every once in a while she would stop in Wisconsin and on the trips, but she made several of these trips back and forth with this top night. On that fateful day on November 10th, 1975, the Fitzgerald carried a crew of 29 crewmen, and unfortunately, all 29 died probably within just a few minutes of the Fitzgerald breaking apart and sinking to the bottom of Lake Superior. And one of the saddest things about the entire endeavor is there were several crewmen who planned on making this their last trip before retiring. That would be Joseph Mazes, Captain Ernest McSorley, Robert Rafferty, and John Simmons. And in fact, Robert Rafferty wasn't even scheduled to be on the Fitz that day. Unfortunately, crewman Richard Bishop had to stay home. He was on medical leave and had actually asked Rafferty to take his place that day. And John Simmons and Captain McSorley had actually known each other, had been friends for over 30 years, and they'd sailed on these ships with each other many, many times. And McSorley had asked Simmons, would you mind coming with me on this one last trip together, and then we'll both retire. So I don't know if John Simmons even was particularly scheduled to even work that shift as well. The ages of the 29 men ranged between 20 years old all the way to 62. And all but one of the men had actually been born in and around the Great Lakes region, whether it's Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, all in those areas. The only crewman on board that hadn't been born in that area was David Weiss, who was actually born in Agora, California. Everyone else had been born in the, the Great Lakes area. So they would have likely been in shipping for quite some time, except for maybe the 20-year-olds. But they had been living around the shipping lanes at that time. And in fact, some of the men had, the older men would have already, would have also served in World War II. And in fact, one crewman, Blaine Wilhelm, served for 11 years in the Navy during World War II, as well as the Korean War. And Ransom Cundy actually also served in World War II. He served in the Marines and was one of the lucky few who actually lived through Iwo Jima. It also would turn out that Ransom Cundy and Frederick Beecher, who were actually best friends, who had sailed with each other, were also making this trip together as well, too. So there's a lot of camaraderie and close family closeness between a lot of these people because they had grown up in this area together doing all this shipping. Now, before we get into the sinking of the ship, I'm just going to give you a little bit of in background 
on Lake Superior herself and the general weather of that area because it gets a bit crazy. So the average temperature at the bottom of the lake, the lake is 530 feet deep, which is really deep. And the average temperature is typically around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, which is freezing temperatures, literally. And the surface area of Lake Superior is about twice that of the Netherlands. But keep in mind, I believe that the entire country of Belgium is smaller than the state of Texas, if I remember correctly. So that wouldn't necessarily surprise me because the U.S., I think, is a lot bigger than most people give her credit for. But also, these quote-unquote lakes, as we call them, are they are lakes, but they act like oceans. And in fact, it's a common saying for, for the Great Lakes as a whole that it's not a lake, it's an ocean that dresses up like a lake. But mostly because most lakes don't have their own weather phenomena. You don't go to Crater Lake and hurricanes or blizzard hailstorms happen because of the weather patterns and around Crater Lake. But the Great Lakes have that, both on the Canadian side and on the American side. And it can get really, really bad. And actually, this is interesting, the um, Ojibwe, or as we call them, the Chippewa tribes, uh, actually, they have a name for Lake Superior called Kichigami. The, the saying about the Great Lakes is, if she gets you, she keeps you. And the tales they would tell would be about how the, the, the lake itself likes to eat boats. And we'll have a link to it. So there's, there's a map. Just for Lake Superior alone is known for her shipwrecks. There's a map where you can actually see all around the coastal areas of Lake Superior where there are hundreds of shipwrecks. But the Chippewa tribe actually has a tale of what they call the Great Lynx or some, I think, refer to it as the underwater panther, known as Vichipeshu. And it is actually said that this lynx causes waves, rapids, and whirlpools. So it's a feline with horns coming out of its head, scales down its back and on its tail with big paws in which for it to paddle through the waters. And it doesn't just live on Lake Superior, it lives in all of the Great Lakes, but it's also known to be able to change its appearance so abruptly, which is the reason there are sudden strong winds or even fog on the lake. And with that being said, Lake Superior has a habit, particularly in November and going on through the, some of the rest of the winter months of changing its weather rapidly because you've got different air pressures coming in and different temperatures coming in and then the water currents changing and it has its own weather phenomenon. And if anyone has lived in the southeast of the U.S., <laughs> you've lived through hurricane season, <laughs> which is typically between late May, early June to about November. But imagine getting a tropical hurricane, but you're in the middle of the winter during a blizzard. No, thank you. Hurricanes scare the crap out of me. I'd rather be in an earthquake than be in a hurricane. And I love winter. No, thank you. Blizzards are fine. As an, as an original Californian, okay, and who lived on the East Coast for 10 years, including the Southeast. You lived in Massachusetts. I'd still rather live in a 
an earthquake than the hurricane. No. I remember... And snowstorms. No. No. I hated them both. Hurricanes and snowstorms. No. Just no. <laughs> I love winter weather way too much. Uh, I love blizzards, but I wouldn't... Hurricanes still just... My goodness. Hur- hurricanes and tornadoes. But I can deal with a tornado, I think, probably a little better. Nope. <clears throat> but... These are some dates. <laughs> I'm going no, heck no, and you're going yeah. Snowstorm. You say the word. You say the word snow to any SoCal person. I don't know. I wouldn't say all Californians, but to anyone growing up in SoCal, you say the word snow, and they just bundle up like, oh my god, I'm freezing just for the word. <laughs> well, I'm not freezing just for the word, but I also I lived in it for so long, but at the same time. I didn't like any of it. I remember in college, because I was college on the East Coast, lost power. Here's some some dates of some more uh, notable hurricanes and the destructive weather phenomenon that had happened on Lake Superior since 1905. So November 23rd, 1905. November 28th, 1905. These were all hurricanes. November 7th, 1913. November 11th, 1940, November 10th, 1975, November 18th, you're seeing a pattern here, as I said, month of November is pretty bad, (laughs) November 18th, 1985, October 31st through November 3rd, 1991, it's actually known as the Halloween blizzard, which dumped 29 inches of snow, and what is that, four days? 29's a lot. Okay, that's almost a whole meter of snow. I grew up in D.C. We might not get two feet in the entire three-month season. That's three, that's almost, that's two and a half feet almost in three days, four days. Wow. And then there was another hurricane also on November 10th, but 1998. And October 26th through the 27th, even 2010, they had what's actually known as an extratropical cyclone which I think would probably be similar to a tropical storm of sorts. This area is just known for its drastic change in weather. Now we're actually getting into the sad, another part of the sad part, the actual sinking of the Fitzgerald. At the time that the ship sunk, the Fitzgerald was carrying approximately 26,000 tons of iron ore. And they were actually at the Burlington Northern Railroad dock in Superior, Wisconsin, heading to Detroit. That was their destination. Uh, Another ship that was leaving from another dock that kind of along the way, known as the Arthur M. Anderson, was was going to follow the Fitzgerald. And they were going to follow it at a distance of about 10 to 15 miles, which is what they did through this expedition. And... November 9th, 1975, there was a gale warning, which is when the the Anderson and the Fitzgerald left, headed to Detroit. There was a gale warning provided in the next day, November 10th, which is the official fateful day of the Edmund Fitzgerald. There was a storm warning. Once the storm warning came in, both the Fitzgerald and the Anderson decided to change their ship's course and the in Lake Superior, and they decided to take a farther north route. Now, this route also meant that they were entering Canadian waters. So, international waters, technically, because if you look at the map, 
you'll see where, can, where it splits right down the middle of Lake Superior between Canadian water and uh, U.S. waters. Hold on one second. I got an airplane buzzing by me. That's with helicopters. Give a second. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Continue. So what was I saying? Oh, right. So they changed that route to the northerly route because normally when they were attempting to avoid a storm, you would go, they would went through the northerly route through the Canadian waters of Lake Superior. Well, this was a mistake because this headed them straight into the storm. This is where the storm is actually going to come from the north this time. And that was probably the biggest mistake they made. The storm did actually hit, and it got to the point where both ships decided to contact the Coast Guard located in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. It was to inform the Coast Guard that the Fitzgerald was taking on water. By the way, the worst part of the storm, these winds are going 70 to 75 knots. It's bad. Was it knots or miles per hour? Well, that would be bad. It was knots. It was knots in the source. But it's about the same. It's imagine living imagine living where I live. I live in the Inland Empire of Southern California. If you look it up, it's kind of like Cabazon, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, this area, uh, La Quinta. And the Santa Ana winds here are awful. So imagine that, but on seas, really stormy seas. So like we get warnings out here that the winds are going 60 miles per hour, and it's really hard to drive on land in them. So imagine going in a 60 to 75 mile per hour wind on Lake Superior in the cold. That's basically what it was like. So at around 3.15 p.m., the Fitzgerald actually got very close to a shoal off, the, off of Caribou Island. If you look at, if you just Google map Caribou Island and look at the pictures, it's, it's not deep waters around Caribou Island. It's very shallow. You can see the rocks. You can see that it's not very deep. So if you're getting close to the shoal, you're going to damage the underside of your ship, which is, well, I'll get into that in a minute, actually. And about 15 minutes after they'd gotten close to Caribou Island, the Fitzgerald radioed the Anderson and informed them that they were listing, uh, leaning towards one side or the other due to an intake of water. But they had reduced its they had reduced, I'm sorry, they had turned on their pumps to get rid of the water. They asked if the Anderson would stay close by, and the Fitzgerald also made the decision to reduce its speed. At 4.10 p.m., the Fitzgerald informed the Anderson that their radars were down, which is another bad thing because if your radars are down on a ship, you can't see where you're going. And so... If you can't see where you're going in the middle of a storm, that, that's screwy. So they actually had to ask the Anderson to guide them. Because the Anderson was fine. It was just the Fitzgerald that was having problems. A blizzard then hit and ended up taking the Fitzgerald out of view of the Anderson. The Fitzgerald did get in contact with the Anderson at about 7.10 p.m. Stating that, quote, we are holding our own. End quote. And that was actually the last time the Fitzgerald was heard from within an approximate 20 minute period when the Anderson could then possibly see the Fitzgerald again. There was no Fitzgerald. The ship basically then disappeared from the map 
and that was the last known contact. And uh, this was actually approximately 15 miles north of Whitefish Point. Whitefish Point was going to be the docking point. They knew they weren't going to actually make it all the way to Detroit. So they made the decision to dock at Whitefish Point, 15 miles away in the Fitzgerald Sink, unfortunately. At around 8 p.m. on November 10th, 1975, the Anderson actually arrived at West Whitefish Point, and they were asked to head back out into the storm to see if they could find the Fitzgerald. They were joined by another ship known as the William Clay Ford in the search. Unfortunately, the only thing they found in the search was some debris and some lifeboats and jackets that were just floating around. As we said, all 29 crew members died. They went down with the ship, and that included Captain Ernest N. McSorley, who this was supposed to be his final trip, who's going to retire. In May 1976, the wreck of the Fitzgerald was discovered. A submersible robot found it and took photos or video of the wreck with the name of the ship on it. To give you an idea of how deep Lake Superior is, the shipwreck was found 530 feet below the water surface. Now, the question comes to what caused the Fitzgerald to sink. The U.S. Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board believe that it was faulty cargo hatches, which made the Fitzgerald flood and then sink. And according to the July 1977 Coast Guard report, the Fitzgerald had improperly closed hatches, meaning that they were taking on water. The ship lost its buoyancy, making the bow dip, and they were never able to recover. Therefore, they sunk. And it was supposedly so sudden that the Fitzgerald did not have the opportunity to send a distressing, which would make sense. Like we said, there's about a 20-minute gap that the Fitzgerald had an opportunity to sink. So that's not a very long period of time. But there are other theories. Other theories include that there were maintenance issues and that the ship never should have been out on the water due to structural issues as well. I can't believe I'm going to say this. There's even a theory on aliens. Yes. I, mm, w- one of the more likely theories that seems at least like it might make sense outside of structural issues was that the ship was carrying far too much cargo. 26,000 tons. That's It, it was a, like slightly over 26,000 tons that they were carrying. So that's a lot of iron ore taconite to be carrying. Some people think that it was the ship was carrying too much cargo, and due to the weight, the ship split in half while it was still on the water surface and then sank. As we said, if you look at pictures, she's literally split in half. One end of her is turned upside down, the other is still right side up. And you're going to get into this in just a minute, but in 1994, on an expedition out to the ship, the body of a crewman was discovered near the bow of the ship, and he was wearing a life jacket. So that it, it just shows you, you know, how interesting and how quick of a situation this was. Because if he was wearing a life jacket, he may not have had the chance to even inflate the life jacket before he went down with the ship. So we get, now get to hear about after yes. the sinking of the ship. Uh, before I get into that, uh, just a quick note on the the sinking. It was also found out that the lighthouse at Whitefish Point 
of all the days for it everything to kind of go wrong all at once, the lighthouse was also inoperable because of the storm, which wow. is something you don't want to happen. Like and of all the places the they're perfect, going, perfect timing. <laughs> of all the places they choose to turn to, Whitefish Point being probably it's the like place that they've gone time, to. Right? And it's a lighthouse that's not usually off, but I think it just has some technical difficulties to work with the, the radio and with the light wasn't working that exact night. Just wow. In addition yes. to that, I, I, my one of my thoughts on how the ship sunk, and then there's a couple of uh, recent, in the last 10 years or so, scientific work that's been on done on how she sank. So aside from possibly having too much mm -hmm. cargo, I don't know how much cargo she frequently carried in terms of weight, but it's entirely possible she may have had a little too much more than she normally would carry. But the prevailing current theory is that she was hit by a 30-foot a, a rogue wave, and she took a nosedive, and then when she came back up, she ended up getting stuck between two other waves that kind of held her at either end and caused her to, to sort of list and then split, if I understand it correctly. All in all, just horrendous and bad. As we said, she is the most famous and tragic shipwreck on Lake Superior. And also, as Lauren pointed out, the waters that she currently resides in are actually Canadian waters as opposed to American waters. And the 1994 discovery that she was referring to, that was part of, started by Dr. Joseph McGinnis, who was actually working on a project that was looking into the effects of chemical pollution on the Great Lakes, because you've got all these different shipping lanes back and forth in all of the Great Lakes, not just Lake Superior, where they're taking iron ore and steel, and just there's just a lot of back and forth of various different chemicals and, and materials. So totally understand that scientific project. And he was looking at wanting to take a project over to the Fitz to see if he can also figure out how possibly it sank. So in, starting in July of 1994, they were able to make six mini sub dives in order to reveal any kind of clues on the sinking of the ship. And this is when the mini subs found evidence of one of the crewmen still in their life jackets. Now, a quick side on the life jackets, the fact that they didn't find any crewmen with their life jackets in the waters when they went back to search. Life jackets are really buoyant. Obviously, they're supposed to keep you above the water. Aside from human bodies as a whole, up to a certain point, tend to be pretty buoyant, and then you add actual buoyancy as a life jacket on top. You're going to be at least on the water for a while until something happens to your life jacket. Even if you're in pretty rough weather, you could still, in theory, stay above water well enough to the point where you're buoyant. You may just get hypothermia and, and be in your life jacket, but at least someone's likely to see you for the life jacket. And the lifeboats were deployed, but no one was in them. So I think from the time the lifeboats were being deployed to the men having their life jackets on. Unfortunately, they just didn't have time to get on the boat and deploy their life jackets. So they did for, They did find a crewman uh, in 94. Now, 
the people in charge of this project actually took the picture of the crewman and took it to some of the family members, if I understand correctly, and asked, would you like to try to identify this man? You know, I, I'm sure we could use some closure here. And I don't think they were able to identify that particular crewman, but being part of a scientific study, he thought, well, maybe, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to post this in the news. This is news. I'm, and then the family got really upset, understandably so, because they didn't want people diving in there. But technically, it was not off limits at that point. But not too long after this issue, they actually pressed the Canadian government to prohibit people from diving the Fitzgerald, which they eventually did because the Canadian government actually declared that the wreckage an official graveyard. And the families of the crewmen that went down actually have control over who can go and come from the site. And what the Canadian government has actually done is taken what they call alarm buoys, which prevent trespassers to a certain degree. Because if someone passes through the buoys and turns on the alarm, it alerts the Canadian Coast Guard, which will then come and arrest the trespassers. And this is kind of crazy. So you can only go, as we said, the family has control as who can and cannot come over to the site. So unless you have the scientific reason, because it's in Canadian waters, it, as we said, it's illegal to dive it because it's now an official graveyard and it requires a particular permit to be able to dive there. And anyone who does dive without a permit and trespasses is facing a massive fine. Would you care to take a guess as to how much possible the money this would be in American? Yeah. Go uh, ahead. I'm going to guess. Okay, you said massive. Yeah. So I'm going to start in the hundred thousands and go with 175 grand. No, more than that. Okay, okay. Um, let me try again. Mm, 220 grand. Way more than that. Seriously? Do I have to go in the 500s? <laughs> it's more than that. It's 800000 Up to a $800,000 fine. No, I didn't. Nope. Not worth it. So not worth it. Oh, that is so not worth it. But also, just don't do it because it's disrespectful. Entirely disrespectful. And, and in fact, what's really interesting is not only did they declare the wreckage a graveyard, which I, I applaud them for letting the families have control over that graveyard because it's essentially now like a family plot. But actually in 1999, on July 17th, the shipwreck was in 75. This is now 1999. Okay, we're talking 24 years later. It's now finally declared a shipwreck. The families are finally consecrating the, the dead that died that day. And... Although there are, there have been some pieces that have been removed from the shipwreck and placed in the Maritime Museum, one of which being the actual bell from the Fitzgerald, they did make a replica of that bell and brought it to the consecration ceremony in 1999. And this is also something that happens every year as well. So not only the day that it went down, did the, they, did the people in the area ring, they had a bell. That wasn't actually the one on the ship. This was uh, in the, so I know the Gordon Lightfoot song, so I call it the Maritime Sailors Cathedral, but that's not exactly what it's called. But they rang the bell 29 times, one for each man on the ship. And they do that every year 
And on the, the consecration ceremony, they actually rang a replica of the Fitzgerald bell, not just 29 times, but actually 30 times. The last one being a remembrance for all other lives lost on the lake as well, too. And what's really interesting, I keep mentioning Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot and the song of the, reg, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He not only wrote the song, which became a big hit, he's actually knows some of the family members because he's been in contact with them over the years. And he was actually in attendance at the 1999 ceremony as well, too. To give a little background on the song, one, if you grew up in the 70s, you very likely heard this song. Or if you're just like me with an affinity for the 70s. But also, I just have to be a fan of Gordon Lightfoot as well, too. If you're a fan, he's a Canadian folk singer, but if you're a fan of Bob Dylan or American folk singers, you'll probably like Gordon Lightfoot as well, too. Uh, he's got some really great songs. And in fact, for a long while, and in Canada, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was actually number one on the top 100. It was actually number two in America. It, was, uh, it wasn't a song in order to cash any kind of profit off of the deaths because Gordon Lightfoot actually wrote the song as a commemoration. So it's a song and memorial essentially for the, the tragedy that happened. But if you have grown up since the 70s, you probably heard more than one version of the song. There are at least two, I think three different versions of the song. The original version of the song, for one reason, also says that the ship, ship was en route to Cleveland, but it was en route to Detroit, so I'm not sure where that comes from. But it also said at 7 p.m. the main hatchways gave in. But in 2010, there was another investigation which actually put forth that three rogue wave series that broke up the ship, which actually put to bed the, the, the hatchways. So the hatchmen were, the deckhands involved of the hatches were actually not in fault. The hatchways had nothing to do with it. They were just caught in a really bad storm at the wrong place with the wrong waves beating them up, essentially. And so he eventually would change the lines the main hatchways gave in to the different lyrics. So there's at least three different versions changing it up because he'll do it out of respect for the family. He's like, oh, okay, this is no longer the, the ongoing theory that we know that this the hatchways were not the issue. Let me change that because that would be really rude to keep that in there. He's, I, I don't know, it's every year on the anniversary, but definitely several years on the anniversary. He's gone over to... The graveyard he's gone to meet with the families nice yeah that that's something you can appreciate yeah it's it's not it, it's one don't mess with mother nature give her all your respect that's just a given and yeah. respect the lives of those who died um everyone's got please, family out there that's please just be nice yeah yeah please be nice here don't and both of us are avid historians, and we love to also do talk about our archaeological adventures that we've both done. And, and in a sense, we get it, but be appreciative. Be respectful. There's a line, please don't cross it. It's just, it, it's unkind. You wouldn't want to be treated like that if you weren't passed away. Let's mm -hmm. just be all around nice. It's just the right thing to do. So that'll be all for today's episode. Oh, uh, just a quick reminder, and we had it at the beginning. Uh, we do have polls going on until Friday. And that would be on your choice of either Leopold and Loeb or 
the tale of uh, Elmer McCurdy and other bodies that happen to be mistaken for Halloween decorations. It's a bit out of Halloween, but it's always a fun time for the morbid stories, I suppose. And also starting with this episode, as we do not have a weird history, we are splitting it up. So one week you'll have a full episode. The following Thursday will be the weird history, a short little mini so to tie you over until the next full episode. And if you have any questions, uh, any additional information, any suggestions, feel free to hit us up, email, Facebook, Instagram. We're on there all the time. And with that, I guess we'll head out for the night. And we'll see you, I guess, next week then, technically. Yes, we will. We will see you in the mini-sode next week. Yes. See you then. <laughs> Bye. Bye.